Support for Class Dismissed comes from School Status. School Status helps educators at every level take control of student data for increased outcomes and meaningful stakeholder engagement. Find out more at schoolstatus.com. You are listening to Class Dismissed, episode 165, and I'm your host, Nick Ortigo. This week, co-host Christina has her first week with students back at school. We'll ask her how it went. And another look at just how many teachers and students are contracting COVID-19 in our state. Stay with us. Class Dismissed is the podcast that inspires educators through story. Each week, we cover some of the hottest topics and news in the world of education. Plus, we hear from a guest with a bright idea for education that you can apply in your community. This week, could silent, sustained reading be a game changer for your classroom? Hello, everybody. Nick Ortigo here. Today is August 31st, 2020, and I'm joined by friend, principal, and co-host Christina Pollard. And Christina just finished her full week back at school with students. So just tell me this, Christina. Was it easier or harder than you imagined? First, let me just say that I am sitting here all smiles because I feel so good about our restart. Good. It was difficult. <laughs> it's one of the most difficult starts in my career, but only because it was so different and because you have so many worries that we follow all of the protocols set in place, that we have everything that every staff or child could need. Um, but I have to say my team, I'm so lucky for the team that I just joined. Um, they were all so motivated and we all have our personal fears and anxiety and different things about restarting face to face. But I have to say they put it to the side and we worked closely together to follow our restart procedures. And we had a great first week. So I have a feeling that a lot of eyes are on us here in, in Mississippi saying like, all right, how's it going down there? Because, you know, New York and Virginia and all these other places up the Northeast, like they're, they're not even open yet. They're waiting till after Labor Day. So since all eyes are on us, I just want to say like, here's how we're doing. And so I pulled the latest stats um, from the Mississippi Department of Health in terms of like total cases so far of actual contracted COVID, actual like past test, not quarantining. Um, and here's where we are right now as of August 21st. Now today is much later than that, but we won't have the newest stats. It's, there's a lagging time of about a week, week and a half before we see everything. But we know from where we started in the state of Mississippi all the way through August 21st, there have been teachers and staff 364 cases, and we know that the total positive students is up to 533, and we can imagine that's wow. probably even higher now, um, but that's, right. as, that's as a state as a whole. So um, first, when you hear those numbers, I mean, is that, I guess part of me is like, wow, that's bad, and another part of me is like could be I kind of expected it to be worse. I don't know where you, you are on that. It could be extremely worse. I think that district administrators and school level um, administrators have probably covered every scenario that they could imagine occurring to put the right things in place. Um, you know, we, we, we're going to make mistakes. None of us have ever led in a pandemic. But for you to say 500 plus is it's. I don't want to, you know, say it the wrong way, but to me, that's a positive because it could have been thousands right. already. And I do worry that, you know, of course, the the illness gets worse over time, mm -hmm. and, and when people have a case, and it's, you know, sometimes people um, will pass somewhere after fourteen days or so, and we so we really haven't even been at this that long, so we don't know the 
the long-term impacts of this. Um, we hope all of those are recoveries. In most cases with the kids, they will be. It's the teachers I really worry about. Um, go that ahead. is very true. And I think my big worry also comes into high school sports. So grades 7 through 12 have kicked off practice as of August 17th in the state of Mississippi. And that's where I think a lot of my concern comes in is practices, workouts. And if they're wearing masks, if they're not wearing masks, what are the coaches doing? And then all of those children go home and then into classrooms. And then all of those coaches go into classrooms and homes. And so I think that's where my biggest concern is. Um, and Friday Night Lights kicks off real soon. Yeah, that, that is a valid point. Now, I can only speak to what I know through my own family in terms of sports. I know my son plays soccer and they're, they're, they actually have a period where it's just soccer. And he's been telling me, he's like, Dad, they really got it together. He's like, we're divided well. Like, So he speaks highly of the steps that they are taking to try to prevent any type of spread and keeping them apart in smaller groups and so forth, even though they're a team. Are you kind of yeah. hearing the same thing at all on, on the football side um, or? I am. And, you know, my son has been working out with his team um, since June and they run a tight ship as well. But at the end of the day, are they wearing masks during the game that night when he's lined up on the O-line? No, of course not. Right. Yeah. You know, well, let me tell you, I got my son. <laughs> I did take care of my son. He's got a couple of those neck guards and, you know, that's better than nothing. Right. But at the same time, you, they're afraid of wearing additional things that will alter their mind and their body during play. And, um, you know, I just really I'm just really concerned about the practices, though, because there's so many of them and they're out in the heat and it's not realistic to keep a mask on your face no. in the heat. And how do you run plays if you're only working with a small group at a time? Right. Well, and so, you know. what we're seeing in the state and as I mentioned, those overall numbers, we have seen some some hot spots um, flare up. And, and one, and I mentioned it last episode, I think it was Biloxi High School. Um, they actually had such a flare up that they decided to go to online only all the way until at least through Labor Day. So I think they had 15 at this one school, 15 positive COVID-19 cases. And then they had 324 students they had to quarantine. And I guess they were like, all right, reset. We're going to this virtual uh, learning. And then so neighboring. That's a good response. Yeah, it is. It is a good response. And so and I like this too. neighboring Hancock County, which I don't think they've necessarily had an outbreak like that. I have no indication that they have. But their superintendent said, well, here's what we're going to do because we need to be ready. They were in person. And now they're saying every Wednesday it's distance learning school wide. And the reason mm -hmm. the superintendent said that, he said, because we just don't know when we're going to have to do this full time. And so I guess he saw Very what true. happened in neighboring Biloxi and was like, we need to basically drill, practice, prepare for what this would look like. So now on Wednesdays in that neighboring county, that's what they're going to do. So that's just two it's kind a, of examples. That's a good opportunity also to deep clean um, and train your cleaning staff and also give your teachers some professional development by having distance learning on Wednesdays. I believe that there was an elementary school in our state that also had to shut down because of very high numbers in their primary grades. Yes, I think you're right. It might have been, I want to say Lauderdale, but I don't want to speak out of turn. because Right, and that just worries me because, you know, our little ones truly can't 
master the skills they need to master learning online. They really need to see the placement of the tongue and the the shape of the mouth as they're learning to mm-hmm. um, make sounds and pronounce letters and 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 begin to learn to read. And so that's worrisome for parents. And not only so, as I read that article, um, the principal had to make a difficult decision late at night. And actually it was on a, I want to say it was on a Sunday night, late at night to say, we are closing school for 14 days. Um, parents were upset saying, where are they going to find substitutes? But at the end of the day, I defend that principle because is it about babysit babysitters and substitutes and this and that, or is it about saving lives? It's, it's, it's definitely got to be about saving lives. So let's dive into your your week. You were saying that, I guess, you're set up differently than the way my child's going to school and the way your child's going to school. Your school is set up in a true hybrid model. So I I definitely want to hear about how that went. So we have three groups, group A and group C, which is 100% virtual, and group A is hybrid. They all started on August the 24th, and we had a really good first day. Um, Of course, we had some hiccups, but I was complimenting my fantastic team. I'm just so lucky that they took it seriously. Everyone was being cautious. We're trying to follow all of the recovery and restart plan protocol. we, you know, we're taking temperatures of temperatures of students before they're even allowed to exit their vehicle so that if it was over 100, um, we just simply tell them, I'm sorry, you're not going to be able to enter the building. Buses are delivering students at the back of our campus and we're taking their temperatures. And I'm telling you, we have not had to contain one child yet. And so knocking on some wood, you know, we're in good shape. Um, we had one scare with a teacher, just, she was a little nervous. And just at this point, I think all of us, if we get a scratchy throat, if we have any type of allergy, we're panicking that we're now COVID-19 positive. And I had a teacher that did that and she was negative and thank goodness for that. Um, so right now we are on the safe end of this restart and recovery. Um, group B started on Thursday, August 27th. Um, we split our students up um, right down the middle of the alphabet. And we found that our group B was much larger than our group A. Mm-hmm. We made a few adjustments. Some parents called in requesting to go from hybrid to virtual and surprisingly um, from virtual to hybrid. And I think it all has to do again with equity and access. A lot of parents began realizing, okay, I signed my child up for virtual, but I don't have the devices. I don't have the bandwidth if I do have internet and I'm not truly able to support and help my child. So I want them to get that direct instruction. Can you, can I, can I stop you? Cause you broke my heart this week. Um, you retweeted a picture and, and I always, I know that kids don't have access to internet, but you, you retweeted a picture that just changed my perspective. It was two children sitting in the parking lot. I forgot if it was a McDonald's or a Taco Bell or or Wendy's. Taco Bell. Yeah. Okay. It was, they were sitting in the parking lot of a Taco Bell. Their faces were, you know, blurred out or or blocked. So you couldn't see them, but seeing these two kids sit in a parking lot of a fast food restaurant, trying to do their homework, that broke my heart. Like it, it made me like, like, but oh, there's positives in there because they had a device. That's true. I want you to know that I have a large percentage of students who not only do not have access to the internet, they don't have a device. And we have been scrambling for months to get our devices ordered and they're on back order. Mm-hmm. I personally was still assigned to my old school, but making new decisions for my new school and put in orders in April. Um, who have, and those orders have been rejected multiple times because of out of stock situations. Um, so we're trying to meet the needs of students, expanding your parking lot Wi-Fi coverage, asking businesses in the community to also provide it. And there are some who have always provided it, like 
Taco Bell or like Starbucks. But if you don't have the device, it's not helpful. Even with a cell phone, and this is something that I really have been trying to explain to a lot of friends um, and parents, even having a cell phone, even if you have an iPhone 11, which is really large, um, you can Zoom, Loom, whatever you want to call it and see your teacher's face and communicate. But it's going to be difficult if the teacher is sharing her screen Mm -hmm. for instructional content. We can't expect children to learn off of a cell phone that way. So right. I'm my concern is just really great in making sure we can provide them what, with what they need. So I'll tell you a little something. I don't know if you've ever used Loom before. This is so off topic. No, I have not. Oh, you've got to try it. So it's it's an it's an app or a desktop app or a website um, that allows you to record videos and show what's on your screen or show something within um another app or a piece of software. And so we rolled that out to our teachers last week. And I'm so excited about the number of videos that they pre-recorded for our virtual learners. So they could watch it over and over and over and I'm, play it. Back I'm looking at time. loom.com now. Yeah. It looks, Listen, looks it, pretty neat. I'm not going to knock what I, what we were told to use a few weeks ago, but loom is so much easier. It only takes a few minutes and you can trim and cut out anything that, you know, you, you consider background noise or what, or whatnot. Um, and we've uploaded so many for our parents and they've been thanking us. In addition to that, we, we have resorted to having to provide hard copies of um, instructional material for virtual learners who don't have access. But what we've done is we're not putting together 20 and 30 page packets. Um, we held a drive through open house before school started and we issued all the instructional materials our students would need. And so we reference the pages to their consumables or their textbooks, but then we provide videos that they can see um, on their cell phones, a copy of a passage that they might need to read or a copy of a diagram. And so, you know, we didn't have large numbers of them picking them up, but, but a few. We're just trying to meet everybody's needs. Well, that's great. I mean, and that's great that we're seeing, you know, these third-party uh, software applications being used and, you know, and I think the, the best ones will bubble up to the top. Like you, like you're saying, you know, here, this loom one is working for you guys. And that's, that's good to hear. And I'm glad you're sharing that resource. Um, you said you had your parents sometimes switching from virtual to hybrid and vice versa. How Absolutely. did you kind of even things out too? Cause you said that your, your, your B group was much larger than your A group. Well, it's not evened out. I will admit um, what we are not doing is adding students to group B because the numbers are already mm-hmm. um, tight for us. And some parents aren't happy with that. But like we tell them, safety is our number one priority. We're following CDC regulations as well as the governor's executive order. So, you know, while they're trying to move students into different groups based on their family schedule, we're explaining to them that we can't accommodate families, um, you know, their different schedules and what they would like, we have to accommodate what is best and safe for all involved. And so, you know, we've, we've, we've been able to get that, that understanding um, for them. So it's not exactly perfectly even, but we're not, our classes are not to the point where teachers are growing concerned that they have too many students in their class. Well, and so what are you seeing having three groups, the A, B, and the C, and the C being virtual only, like how large are your class sizes turning out to be? Is it like 20 kids, 15? Well, you know, with virtual, the State Department waived because generally you cannot have more than 27 children in a class for middle school. And when the State Department waived that number, you can load 40, 50, 60, you know, or more in one class period that is considered a virtual class period. Mm -hmm. And that teacher can manage all of those students and manage grading those papers. But face-to-face, 
we didn't want to put more than 25 in a class. And then we split that homeroom. Half is group A and half is group B. So while you might have the 25 or 27 on your roster, only, you know, 10 to 14 are scheduled in each group. And then we have to remember out of those numbers, some children have dropped from those numbers to become virtual. Right. And and are you guys doing the whole lunch thing where you just do it in your, your homeroom classroom or how's that working We out? are. And we, listen, I keep bragging on everybody because I, I didn't sleep the night before school started. I mean, I literally stayed up all night just praying and thinking about all the things that we needed to make happen correctly. And we're having grab and go breakfast. So they come from the bus or the car line, make their way down the hallway. They grab their breakfast. They go to the classroom. And then for lunch, we have a tight um, lunch schedule. Teachers bring their classes. We have um, social distancing decals on the floor so they know exactly where to stand, um, how to you know keep the line moving, but yet social distance. And our cafeteria team sets up and we have what's really unique is a rotunda in the very center of our building. And so we, we use it like a roundabout for traffic. And that's exactly how the students travel in the rotunda. And so they make it there. They go through the lunch line. They get all the things that they want. And they give their lunch number for reconciliation of um, child nutrition regulations later on in the day. And they go back to the classroom. And one of the things we encourage teachers is to remember this is a lunchtime. And before the pandemic, Nick, teachers only got about 15 to 17 minutes to get your class there, warm your lunch up, eat your lunch and get them back to class. And so there's a benefit to this. Our students are getting 30 minutes of lunch. And that includes the time to travel to pick it up. Um, go back to your classroom and and eat and digest your food. And we encourage them to play a little music, um, put on some something that creates an actual lunch and relaxing atmosphere so that the students aren't staying high, strung and stressed. And then they also have a rotating restroom schedule where we're only allowing two um, students in a restroom at a time. And it's working, but it's working because the team is working together to make it happen. That's great. Now, okay, so you said you were kind of losing sleep running up into this. If there's a edu- an educator who's sitting at, at home or driving around listening to this and they haven't started school yet, they're starting post-Labor Day, what's your advice to that person? Should they lose sleep? I mean, or, I mean, do you just have anything like... Let me just be frank. Educators are going to lose sleep the night before their first day of school. Is And I have not researched this, but I'm telling you, it's a part of the process. And it comes from passion and heart. And even without the pandemic the night before, I may not have stayed up all night, but I woke up early and was at school bright and early. And so it's just something that we do. But I will say this, make sure you've put everything in place that your district's restart and recovery plan says is required. Um, Trust the process. Encourage, encourage, encourage your team. You literally have to run all over that building if you're an administrator and cheer everyone on that we can we can make this work. Um, a lot of communication has to go out to parents before school starts. I mean, almost every night, making them understand your child is not getting out of the car without a mask. Right. <laughs> They're not getting out of the car without their temperature taken. Um, having some extra mask on hand for children who... Um, lose it on the way into the building, whatever the case may be, depending on the age, but trust the process and make sure your teachers are well-trained and that they understand what's required of them. Um, but there are some schools that are going to return, Nick, after Labor Day to a traditional model. And I cannot speak to that. Right. I'm incredibly lucky that my school board and my school district understood the need to reduce the numbers of children in a classroom. So if they're returning to traditional um 
you you got to protect yourself. That's to me, that's going to be the number one thing is make sure that you're wearing your face shield, your mask, your gloves that you're keeping. If you wear gloves, that you keep them sanitary or you change them often. Um, encourage the, the students if they're not mandated in your district, encourage them to wear a mask, help them understand um, some of the signage provided by the CDC. And then if you're also in a school district that's providing traditional and not a virtual option, I just would say don't speak negatively about your district because it will create a problem that you really can't defend later. Um, leaders make all different types of decisions and we make decisions that we think are right when we initially do them. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we go back and retract and make a change and sometimes we're honoring and we don't. Um, so we're all contractual employees and we have to serve regardless. It's all good advice. You sound more confident though now that you've been through a week of this and seeing this in action. Am I, am I reading you right there? You are. And I feel great. Like this weekend, I've been completely, you know, relaxed. I'm still checking emails a lot. I'm still identifying, you know, a lot of things that I need to remind teachers to do or things that we need to address. But I'm not worried so long as we stay consistent in our practices. Mm -hmm. That's and that's where it gets hard. It's it's almost like doing a diet, right? Like you have to you have to follow through. You have to remember those rules and and not cut corners, I guess. You cannot cut corners. We we cannot allow one person in the building without their temperature being taken. Um, I have one custodian that arrives at 630 with with and that's what time I arrive sometimes a little bit before then. But we have to take each other's temperature. And then our district has created what's called the temperature tracking form. So even though we clock in and out, there are forms that every single employee and visitor completes so that in the event that someone has a fever or we find out they have a positive test result, then we have a district um, response team that then conducts um, contact tracing. That's So that we notify the appropriate students and or the appropriate staff of the need to get tested or to quarantine. Yeah. And we continue to see big strides made in the um, saliva testing that we've talked about on this show. And I saw Abbott apparently has another new test out that, I mean, you don't even need a doctor there to administer it. And I think there's a couple other private companies working on this When is that going well. local? We're ready for that because I, that no swab is something else. <laughs> I, I read that they were going to be able to make 50 million tests in the month of October. Um, wow. so that would be a big deal if they could distribute 50 million tests in the month of October, that could easily be, and I think schools are very much a primary target for this type of testing where you could just yes. quickly, you know, even if it's just your staff, just pass out, you know, all these little, uh, for lack of a better term, it's almost like a, it's not a pregnancy test, but it's that easy, you know, it's, yes. you know, where you can just kind of do it yourself and find out. And then I think if it was a positive, you would probably follow up with a more professional medical type test, but it, you know. Just to make help. sure, absolutely. But at least it's not as in- invasive as the nose swab is. Some people just really were in, you know, um, they were terrified that they just can't handle that. And they came out of um, testing just as irritated as they can be, but, you know, still remaining positive. Well, and if, if you could do a test where you don't have to leave your workplace, I mean, it takes time, right? Like if you have to go do a test, you have hours, to go somewhere. Hours, you stand in line. Exactly. Yes. So, and I feel like that could that could be a big help too. It's I remember where I used to work at the newsroom, we would have somebody come and administer flu shots, you know, and it, you didn't have to do it. Absolutely. But it just, that type of thing just makes it easier because- We still have that happening in schools where the local clinics will come and set up in our lounges or teacher workrooms and allow us to get our flu shots without leaving the building. And we are starting up that time right now. A flu shot yep. season is now underway. Well, 
Well, Christina, I'm so glad to hear um, you more confident now that you guys got underway. I hope everything continues to go well. And we'll, of course, continue to check back with you and make sure everything's on track. I don't doubt that your perspective is useful to somebody out there listening who hasn't even started yet. So thank you for that. You're welcome. We're looking forward to another positive and safe week. No doubt. Are you ready for the Brad idea? I am. Our guest in today's Bright Idea segment is here to explain how sustained silent reading can keep students curious and engaged. Steve Gardner taught English and journalism for 38 years, and he was also named Montana Teacher of the Year in 2008. And he is the author of Building Student Literacy Through Sustained Silent Reading. Steve, welcome to Class Dismissed. Thanks for having me here. I'm going to enjoy this. It's great to have you here. And and so our listeners um, who may not be familiar with SSR or sustained silent reading, uh, I want you to help me kind of set the stage here. How is this different than what my teachers used to do to me, where they would say, all right, just pull out a book and read quietly? Well, uh, in, in some sense, it's, uh, that's what it is. Uh, there's a lot of encouragement that goes along with it. And um, uh, the idea, I, I guess, behind SSR is student choice. You know, we give kids so many, um, you know, short stories, poems, novels that they have to read in class, and then they're tested over those. And th- all of that's good. It's, it's all part of the curriculum, and I, I certainly don't have any problem with that. But I just believe there was something else. There should be something else there where there was some freedom on the part of the student to make some selections, uh, to learn how to be what I called a good adult reader. And in order to do that, in order to become the good adult reader, they have to be treated like adults. They need to be able to pick a book. Uh, They need to be able to look at the book and say, this one's not working for me. I'm going to, I'm going to stop and without any penalty. And so I worked, I was able to work those things into my program for the SSR and found that uh, I was having tremendous success with it. Uh, it was changing students' attitudes toward reading. And I, I, so I came to think of that as my ultimate goal with this program. You've got the core curriculum stuff that you're working on, but with the SSR, it's trying to teach enjoyment. It's trying to make students believe that, hey, I'm a reader. Uh, I can do this. I can sit here. I can choose a book of my own. Uh, I can read it. Uh, and then I can respond to it if I want to. Uh, and uh, that learning those skills, I think, are very, very important. How important is it to have the sustained part of it? I mean, to, to read every day. Uh, I think that the sustained is is really, really critical in, in what I was trying to do with this program in my classes. Uh, for example, um, sometimes I would I would talk with teachers about this and they would say, hey, I think I want to do this. But I think, uh, uh, you know, I tried it and and here's what I did. Instead of 10 or 15 minutes a day, I just decided to give them all, all class period on Friday to read. And, you know, uh, 10 minutes a day, five days, that's 50 minutes. That's a class period. And we just did it on Friday. And it's not working for me. Well, of, of course, it's not working. Uh, it wasn't sustained. It was, it would, this would be the same thing as if, um, for example, I used to coach the cross country team. And if instead of running uh, two miles a day or three miles a day, we just saved it up and ran 10 or 15 on Friday. It, it, they don't get in shape then they're, and they're going to injure themselves. Uh, readers aren't going to injure themselves, but they're not going to get, mm-hmm. they're not going to train their reading muscles. They're not going to develop 
the habits that I really wanted them to develop. So in an SSR, it's not, it's not math. Five times 10 is not 50. They, they don't, they don't equal. Uh, it's gotta be every single day. And uh, what that also does is something that I didn't realize at the beginning, but came to understand as very important is if the student brings the book every day to class, they get used to carrying that book around, becomes part of them. And then they start looking at what the books that other kids are carrying around. And, and it just kind of has this, um, it, it, it spreads itself around. They start, well, hey, maybe I'll read that book next. And then they, they, they carry on their own spontaneous book talks. And I think that that's really important. Uh, they also found that if they are carrying the book with them, uh, it has a chance of going home in the evening and being read, you know, prior to bedtime or something like that. All of those are important parts of SSR. Well, and that's going to lead me to another question I have, which is how do you get the the skeptical student to buy into this program? Yeah. Uh, so say you have uh, 25 students in a class, and, and I'm speaking this because my, my background is high school, uh, but I do know that SSR uh, works at other levels as well. But say in one of my high school classrooms, uh, I had 25 students and I would have them get books on the first day and say, okay, the, the program starts tomorrow. Now bring your book. And, and of course, uh, you know, especially in the beginning, uh, kids forget or they just haven't got one yet. And so I always had some extra books and they could read in those. But um, here's what I found in terms of getting that reluctant reader to go. Most of the kids are excited. This is for many of them. This might be the first time in in their high school career, or maybe in their whole schooling, where a teacher's given them the choice to do this. And so they they pick this book that they want to read, and maybe it's something they wanted to read for a long time and never had a chance, but now they do. And so most of the kids, um, when I would say, "Let's begin, um, get out your books, and let's start reading right now." Uh, they would just go ahead and do it. And so say if you had 20 kids that just started reading right away, the other five that are kind of hesitating, you know, a couple of them will look around and say, it's it's kind of like, but but dad, everybody's going to the dance uh, mm -hmm. Friday night. Uh, and they look around the room and say, well, everybody's reading. I, I guess I will too. And they, they may be reluctant, but they start in and and eventually get going. Usually within just a few days, I would have the entire room reading. It was pretty rare to go beyond the first week and not have everybody in the room reading. Occasionally it happened. Sometimes there was uh, some pretty tough holdouts. Um, but in most cases, they came around just fine and ended up enjoying the program. Did, did you ever have a student come back to you and say, you know, this changed the way I read, I consume information? I figured up at one time, well, when I wrote the book, and that was, um, you know, I still had several years left in my career, but uh, I think I wrote the book after 27 years of teaching, and I figured up that I had had about 3,000 uh, kids come through my classroom, and that they had read about 40,000 books. And, um, wow. I, I, you know, you, you, you want kids to come back to you at some point and say, hey, what you did helped me out. Well, they did. Lots of them. Lots and lots of 
it, lots of really? kids came back from, you know, from, you know, maybe I had them in sophomore English and they'd come back as a senior and say, wow, I, you know, I wish I had you in class because my, my senior English teacher uh, doesn't give me SSR time. That was one thing that I heard. But the one that the ones that really impressed me were the ones that bothered to come back, you know, say the week before Thanksgiving or the week before Christmas, they came back from college and they had been, uh, maybe they had been out of my classroom for a couple of years or something even. And they'd come back and they'd say, you know, Hey, I'm in an engineering program had never guessed how much I was going to have to read in that program. And I found myself thinking so many times about the time that you gave me, in your classroom to read. And I learned that I was a reader and that I could handle this material. It's made the whole difference to me. I, I heard, had many, many students come back with that kind of a story. That's really powerful. Um, you know, we, li- we live in a time now where, uh, you know, students, kids, that so much is competing with our time. And, and also we can consume a lot of reading through our phone. Sometimes I'll, I'll find even myself, like I'll have a, a, some books I want to read or some National Geographic magazines next to my bedside. And I can't help but just read, you know, news articles and different junk on my phone. What would you say to a teacher that or a student that's making that argument? Well, they're reading if they're looking at their phone. I mean, when you think of SSR, you don't mean in the digital world, right? Well, I, I had to adjust. You know, uh, I mean, obviously, I began teaching in the late seventies, and the digital world uh, wasn't there, so everybody just brought in a book. And then I had to make a couple of adjustments along the way. Uh, one of the first ones related to this was not digital, but it was when graphic novels came in, say, I think that was like in the 90s. And it mm-hmm. looked like comic books, you know, and I thought, that's not really where I want this kid to go. And so I went down and talked to the librarian and found out, no, they're actually the characterization's pretty good. The plots are usually uh, pretty strong. And uh, so I adjusted to that told them they could bring in graphic novels. Usually it was one or two kids, didn't change the classroom at all. And if that was what the kid needed, uh, that worked then. Then the digital thing came in. And at first it was, you know, a kid would get a Kindle for Christmas. Well, can I bring my Kindle in? Yeah, that seems like fair game. Right? Yeah. And and I thought, sure, you know, that's, that's fine. And in fact, at one point I even went and uh, you know, uh, convinced the principal that I needed some money to buy a Kindle and put it in my classroom so kids could use it. You know, if this is where the world is going, uh, I ought to be giving them some experience in that area. And so I had the Kindle in and they could use it. And, and, um, you know, they, they didn't, they, they more often preferred their, their regular book than coming in and, and, and using my Kindle, but uh, it was there if they wanted it. And that worked for a while. And then, you know, there were e-readers and other other versions of that that came out. And then eventually they started coming in and saying, can I read on my cell phone? And that was a little harder for me because so much easier to get off task while you're on your cell phone, start texting a friend or, or uh, you know, playing a game or something like that. But I did find that the kids who came in with a cell phone and said, can I read on it? Uh, they, uh, you know, I, I would check on them, you know, uh, not every day, but I'd check on them often enough that I knew they were staying on task and it did work. And I, my comment to them now, my eyes were much older than theirs. How do you read a book on a cell phone? I couldn't do it. Uh, but they seemed, uh, for the, for the handful that did that, it seemed to work really well for them. But again, most kids just preferred bringing the book in. 
And so it was, it was clearly the majority all the way through my career that we're reading from uh, a, a regular print version book. You taught English, um, but would you recommend to other teachers out there who maybe aren't in English, maybe science class, do the same thing? Or do you kind of envision this is really mainly for an English class? It seems to work uh, more closely with English curriculums for obvious reasons, but I certainly had people that um, either read my book or attended one of my workshops or something like that and gave it a try in other areas. Uh, I had a science teacher who was a good friend of mine, and he just decided, uh, you know, I'm going to use this. And he put uh, some minor restrictions on the program, had to be some something to deal with science. Kids loved it. It worked really well for him, and he used it for years. Uh, and I would ha- I would hear kids, uh, they would have, maybe they would have both of us um, in a semester, and... Uh, they'd come in and read in my class in English and, and be reading, you know, one book and then uh, go into his science class and be reading another book in there and and do just fine with it. When did you have the epiphany, for lack of a better term, that this is something that you need to do in your class? About two weeks in, uh, after I started teaching. Uh, I My first teaching job, uh, I was given five sections of a class called Basic Communications. Uh, it was exactly what it sounds like. Uh, the students that were in there had failed all of our other English classes. Um, I was their last chance. I was their last chance to get an English credit and their last chance to earn the credits they needed to graduate. Um, I had no students that were enthused about English, um, very few students that were enthused about being in school at all. So it was a very difficult situation. And instead of giving them books, uh, what the school had done was bought, um, uh, you, would, you would just call them packets. Uh, they would read a story, and then there were pages that they would fill out with questions about the story. Not really stimulating uh, curriculum material. And they were struggling with it, and I was struggling with it. And I just mentioned this to another teacher, and she said, hey, have you ever thought about using sustained silent reading? And I said, you know, that's something I've never even heard of. I don't know. She gave me a quick rundown on it. And I thought, um, okay, um, at this point, I've got to do something. I've got to try something. And so this is, I had five classes of these very reluctant students. And I came in and I talked to them about this. And I said, you know, let's try this. And they didn't want to do it. They didn't want to do anything. And, but I, I had them get a book. And we went down to the school library and got a book for each one of them. And we came back and they read a little bit. And it was actually kind of quiet for a few minutes. And I thought, okay, bring your books back tomorrow. We'll do this again. And we did it again. And it wasn't that long. I mean, within several days, so a week at the most, uh, I was getting an occasional complaint when I asked them to put down their books and, and go to their packets. And I thought, wow, I'm getting somewhere. This This has got me kind of excited about this. And um, it before, you know, by, by the end of a month, it was just an integral part of the program. I realized this is exactly what they need. And it's helping them. It's helping them as readers, but it's also helping them to realize that maybe school's not such a bad place. And I had really good success with them. And so that convinced me that I needed 
uh, I needed to learn more about this program and uh, keep it going. So I tried to find, you know, some research on SSR and some some help on SSR and found several sources that were that were good and just kept working at it, trying to improve the program. How am I going to hold them accountable for what they do? How am I going to deal with this in terms of grading and things like that? And was able to solve all of those problems. And by the end of the year, was just convinced that this was what I was going to do. Uh, then fortunately, the next year, I ended up with only two sections of those and then uh, other sections of classes of what you would call more regular English and thought, let's try it there. And it was even more successful. And that was it. It stayed with me for 38 years. I, I did it every single year that I taught. Uh, and uh, to this day, I believe it was the most important thing I did with my students. Wow. Well, that's that's quite the powerful statement. I, you know, am I crazy to think that I should start this myself, like as an adult, like I don't need to have a teacher tell me to do it, like just pick up a magazine or a book and, and read for 15 minutes a day? Uh, I think it would make a difference in your life, that's for sure. And uh, you mentioned that you uh, have children of your own. Um, boy, I, I know more than one parent who started SSR programs at home. And I have three daughters. Uh, they're all very good readers. Uh, they grew up in a household where they had two parents that were teachers that were reading all the time. And I, I guess this brings up a point here. Uh, there is, uh, you know, we call it modeling in education where the teacher does the act, uh, the activity or the, uh, the act, the, the action that, that they want to receive from the students that going mm -hmm. the showing rather than telling. And it's, it's absolutely critical with reading. So many of the students that I was working with, especially in those early years, uh, I would do surveys and have you, have you ever seen your parents uh, sit down and read? Most of them, no. Uh, have you, have you ever seen your parents read a book? Probably not. Have you ever seen your parents read a newspaper? Maybe. Uh, but the, it, there was a huge correlation with the people, with the students who had seen a parent sit and read and their own interest in reading. Uh, the, wow. the correlation was very, very high. That same correlation holds in the classroom. When I did SSR with my students, I read with them every period of the day. I, 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 of course, I enjoyed that. It was, it, was a, it was a treat for me. But they had to see me read. They had to see me react to a book. Hey, you guys, I got to tell you about this book that I'm reading today. That's right. powerful. When they, hear the, when they hear an adult talk that way about a, a book, they, they start wanting to, can I, tell, can I tell the class about my book today? You bet. Let's take one minute and you take one minute and tell us about that book. And they would and they'd be proud of it. And so teachers, if you're going to have an SSR program in your classroom, the teacher has to participate. It's not a time to grade papers. It's not a time to check email. Uh, it's not a time to uh, sit and stare off into space. Teacher has to be actively working on the SSR program with the students and participating uh, in all forms. Then it's going to be successful. I love it. Uh, Steve Gardner, you are, um, we were talking before the show, uh, we started recording, you're retired now, and you're actually um, a journalist. Uh, so so you're not in the teaching field really anymore. But do you still have an opportunity to reach out to teachers? Or if somebody wants to keep up with you, is there a place they can go to kind of see what you're up to? Uh, well, sure. You know, I, I've published a number of things, the book and several articles about, uh, about it. Um, I have a, a, a website 
call it's uh, quietwaterpublishing.com. Uh, and there's quite a bit of information there about uh, the SSR work that I've done, um, six traits writing work that I've done, as well as um, other articles that I've published, uh, say, on outdoor topics and um, uh, adventure travel and things like that. So a variety of things available there. Good stuff. I'll be sure to link uh, that website to our show notes if anybody wants to track that down. Uh, Steve, are you ready for our pop quiz? I'll give it a try. All right. If students could only go to school for one subject, which subject should it be? Uh, that, uh, <laughs> that's a, a hard one. But having been an English teacher for 38 years, it would be hard to pick something else. Uh, I just think that the skills of reading and writing and speaking are so critical. Uh, they just carry over into about every other area of our life. Now, I understand that, uh, you know, with science and technology, where our society is going, those are absolutely critical too. But if you're going to make me pick one, I have to go with where I spent my life. What are we not teaching in school that we should be teaching? I, I think maybe uh, we, we have all the subjects that are there. And, and maybe this is just a... Um, a reflection of the time where we are, uh, you know, we hear, uh, you know, uh, negative comments so much uh, in the news and things and, and maybe, uh, uh, you know, uh, we're, we, we, so much of what we hear uh, is frightening, uh, you know, mass shootings and, and things like that. Um, maybe, uh, we could create, uh, you know, some classes in, in uh, just, you know, being a good human being and being a, uh, a good friend to people and, and, and helping people get along. Yeah, empathy maybe, right? Yes, exactly. What does every child deserve? Well, I think one of the, um, one of the things, maybe, I, I guess it's kind of related I think that every child needs an adult, an adult that it might be the parent, it might be a teacher, it might be a coach, uh, it might be the next door neighbor, it might be grandpa and grandma. Uh, I don't think it matters what the relationship is, just as long as there is a caring adult there to guide that student when they need it and to turn them loose when they're ready to be turned loose. What's the biggest challenge for today's educators? One of the things I was finding towards the end of my teaching career was um, the speed with which things were coming uh, at me as a teacher. Uh, every year it was a, uh, you know, a new program and a new piece of technology that I would have to learn. Uh, and it just seemed like it, uh, it was just constant um, change and motion. And that's not all bad, but it was hard to keep up with. And, and uh, maybe it was just that I was towards the end of my career uh, maybe some of the younger teachers are more adept at making those changes and things. But um, I found that the speed of change and the speed that new things were coming at me, uh, I found that uh, difficult. What's the best gift to give an educator? I, I don't know very many uh, educators that wouldn't be excited getting uh, books or uh, uh, a gift certificate to a bookstore. That seems to be, uh, I think, uh, a pretty popular thing. Uh, and, and, and I guess if you could step back in a, in a larger sense, 
maybe a, a, a gift of uh, extra time to get things done. Which teacher changed your life? I had, uh, uh, I'll, I'll take two because they're really closely related. In high school, I had a teacher who uh, was very progressive and in fact gave me the chance to read a book that I wanted to read uh, my whole class, but uh, it was a, it was really a, a, a small version of SSR, uh, first time that I had ever seen that. And uh, he was uh, he was very encouraging, uh, and that started me. But I didn't really care for English in high school. Uh, it took another person in when I was in college, a professor in, in college, uh, to make me realize that that was where uh, my direction was going. And so um, that professor in college um, really helped me, gave me so much encouragement. Um, was uh, just a, a, a super mentor and became uh, literally a lifelong friend. And last question, pen or pencil? I guess I write with pen uh, most of the time uh, if, if it's on paper. Um, but I've, uh, between uh, my work as a teacher and now my current work uh, as a journalist, um, it's more on the more on the keyboard. Steve Gardner, again, we appreciate you uh, coming on the show to talk about sustained silent reading and uh, best of luck to you with your uh, new ventures uh, in the world of journalism. Well, I'm enjoying them and thank you very much for having me on. That's going to do it for this episode of Class Dismissed. If you want to send us an idea or comment, remember you can always email us at info at classdismissedpodcast.com or tweet us at classdismissed. We're here to support educators, but we need your support as well. So please subscribe to the show. And we'd also appreciate it if you could leave us a five-star review on iTunes. On behalf of all the good people working at School Status and Christina, representing all those educators out there, thank you for listening. I'm Nick Ortigo, and I'll talk with you next week. Class dismissed.